0: Welcome to The Public Morality. As 2023 draws to a close, it's safe to say that it has been an unprecedented year in the world of politics. Never before has a former president been indicted on criminal charges, let alone 91 felony counts and four criminal cases in Washington, New York, Florida, and Georgia that former president Donald Trump currently faces that could potentially be years in prison if convicted. What are the implications of President Joe Biden running for office as an octogenarian? And how much faith do we, the people, have in the overall state of American democracy? Joining me for this year-end analysis of 2023, we welcome back Holly McCall, editor of the Tennessee Outlook to The Public Morality. Holly McCall, welcome back to The Public Morality. So good to have you.
1: Byron, it is great to be with you again.
0: Um, as 2023 draws to an end, assess, if you will, what you consider the current state of American politics. Ooh,
1: that's a loaded question to start out with. You know, it's rough. Like, I still just can't believe that the Republican Party is about to. To probably nominate the former president, Donald Trump, who has got 91 indictments against him. And he says this, and I think it's true, that every time he gets another indictment, he becomes stronger. And, and that's baffling to me. You know, this is not the old Republican Party. My favorite uncle was a staunch Republican. Um, he and uh, Nelson Rockefeller were friends. And, like, Nelson Rockefeller, like, he's a whole nother topic because I'm no fan of his. But these were basic business-minded Republicans. And what we see is the Republican Party now, it's it's not. Like, it's still called the Republican Party, but they have no principles. They are the party of Trump. And I, I'm just baffled by that. I'm baffled to see that so many people seem to be following his lead. And I guess they've seen that it's worked for him to be dishonest and to call names and to lie about things because we see, you know, George Santos was just expelled and, you know, that was not a foregone conclusion. There were plenty of Republicans who voted to keep him in for like lying about his employment and finances. And, you know, it, it's just like, I, I don't, it's hard to see exactly how he got here. And Byron, like you, I am a student of history and politics. But it's a, uh, I really have to put my tinfoil hat on when I start thinking about how we arrived at this point. And it's crazy to me. I read a study a couple of days ago that said something like about a third of Republicans think that political violence might be necessary after the next election. Po- that violence might be necessary. And again, like that's just crazy to me.
0: It is and I'm just sort of bouncing off your last answer. It's often been said that we're like a 50-50 country politically and we're marred by polarization. Is it that simple? Are we really a 50-50 country in your viewers or is it more complex than that?
1: Um, Are we a 50-50 country? I mean, I... God, that's a tough question. I think that... When it gets down to a horse race question of are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? We are. And I know plenty of Republicans um, who tell me even, they tell me that they think that we need to reassess elections, that there needs to be more of an effort to vote for the best candidate, regardless of whether that candidate is Republican, Democratic or Independent. And then my next question is, so will you vote for a Democrat? And I get this hemming and hawing. Oh, well, gosh, you know, that's really hard. And so I think there are plenty. I I do, in fact, think that there are plenty of good people who still identify as Democrats. I mean, as Republicans. However, they don't like Trump. However, when it gets down to brass tacks, how are they going to vote? Because we get locked in to our politics, our partisan politics. Like it becomes a part of us. And this is not the first place I've said this. Like, I I don't know that I would vote for Jesus Christ himself if he ran as a Republican. And I also believe we should vote for the best person. I just don't happen to see too many people running in my neck of the woods or even nationally as Republicans who I believe would do a good job. But, yes, I think we are locked into these partisan perceptions where good people find it hard to cross the aisle. And that's going to be the death of us.
0: Hmm. You, you know, you 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 mentioned um, Nelson Rockefeller in an earlier answer. I I I would put forth that Nelson Rockefeller, uh, Jacob Javits, Jack Kemp, um, there are no room. There's not any room for those individuals to identify as Republicans today. And these are these are were staunch Republicans, but there's no there's no room for them.
1: No, there's really not, and. You know, I'm in Tennessee, just outside of Nashville, and I was talking to a former Republican candidate a couple of weeks ago. This is a guy who went to the Naval Academy, Annapolis, served in the Navy, Um, you know, has been a businessman since the time he got out. And when he ran for office last year against a candidate who'd never been in office either, um, this gentleman, the former Navy guy, was called a rhino. And I don't know for what reasons. Um, I think they found his opponent found a picture of him shaking hands with Joe Biden that was taken. mm, It was when Barack Obama was still in office and this gentleman was accepting some award for military service. And Biden was at the ceremony, but they found this picture and ran that out and just took that to town about how, look, he says he's a Republican, but he's really a Democrat. That's just stupid, but it works.
0: (laughs) You know, you know, Holly. I I can't think of a time, uh, at least in my adult life, where uh, it felt that uh, making a political point was more important than doing the people's business. And 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 I wonder what what are your thoughts on that?
1: You know, that's a that's a per- perfect timing for that question. Um, my husband who probably does a better job of keeping up with national news than I do. Than I do. Um, as you know, I run a Tennessee-specific outlet called the Tennessee Lookout, and the middle-aged mind can only cope with so much. But my sweet husband was reading a story to me today that House Republicans are holding up aid to, I think, to Israel and to Ukraine. Ukraine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: yep, Based on uh, a border measure to secure the border. But on the other hand, they don't really want the border secure because then that looks good for Joe Biden if he secures the border and immigration and border security is his weakest point. So I can't really think of an example that gets to what you just said better when they're not looking at doing what is good for really anybody. You know, if you're concerned about border security, and I think that's a valid, I think that's something valid to be concerned about. But here's an opportunity to at least take steps to fix that, but you won't do that because it might help You know, somebody in the other party might help another elected official. And that to me is new in the last 15 years or so. And I don't know if that started with the Tea Party. There's always been an element of screw the other side, if you will pardon my French. But I I noticed it a lot in Tennessee. And I don't think I think we are a microcosm of what is happening in the country. You know, when there was a Democratic supermajority in Tennessee, look, Democrats did a lot of stupid stuff, a lot of stupid stuff. I'm 59. I was here for it. There was corruption, bribes. You know, it wasn't good. I remember after one scandal in 1989, two leading Democrats committed suicide. But I don't remember them doing, taking the sort of malicious measures that harmed their constituents. And that's what I see both at the state level here and frankly, in other states across the country and at the federal level. It's more it's all about the gamesmanship now it's there's always been an element of gamesmanship but now it seems to be all about partisan gamesmanship and I don't know who is benefiting I don't know who's benefiting from politics today except for maybe elected officials and I do think I know there are people who are out there who are cynical who would say it's always been that way but it, it has not hmm. it has not always been this way
0: well I think to your point it it to follow up it seems at least from my vantage point, that we've added this notion of a zero-sum game. So if you and I are in the legislature, it's not enough for me to get a victory. I also have to destroy you in the process. And that mm-hmm. seems to be new, at least in, in, in my observation. Your thoughts. You no,
1: know, I think that's I, I think that's correct. And again, like I know that you have a national audience, but it's hard for me to not address everything from a Tennessee standpoint. That's what we have you
0: on. Go ahead. Well,
1: I I do think we are a microcosm of the rest of the country because you can see these patterns playing out across the country. But to your point, Byron, you know, I think I was on here after the Tennessee three, after the two young Mm -hmm. black makers were were expelled from the state house here in Tennessee. And I hear people all the time say, well, you know, they should play by the rules and they're not going to get anything accomplished by raising hell. And, my point is, look, I do believe that you should try to play by the rules. You, I've always believed you could get more done working from the inside from than working from the outside. But here you have these two young gentlemen who are both, I'm telling you, like they are incredibly, incredibly smart. And they are working inside the system. But guess what? If you can't get a bill out of committee working within the system and playing by the rules. If you can't even get your microphone shut on to make a point during a legislative session when you're playing by the rules, then what are your options? And so we've seen, you know, just in Tennessee, like the supermajority is so drunk on power that Democrats can't get anything done, even if it's good for their constituents. And so at that point, I think we start to see more of this disruption of system. But I think it's necessary because if you can't accomplish what you want any other way, what are your options?
0: Well, I mean to 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 that point, and forgive me for my for my um offbeat analogies, but American democracy, in my view, is like a a a fine-tuned watch. I'm a watch guy. It's like a fine-tuned watch. And and that watch works great, but you only need one element of that watch not to work. And mm-hmm. it the watch will not work. And I see American democracy um, very similar that we could, we only need one thing for this grand idea uh, to not work. Your thoughts. Uh,
1: you know, actually, I think that's a great analysis. And, you know, we are seeing the watch to your point or I like clocks and clocks are like bigger watches, which was my profound statement of the day. But uh, yeah, I think we are starting to see, little pieces, parts of the time piece are breaking down all over in states, at local levels, you know, my hometown in Tennessee, there was a woman who uh, was accompanied by people who call themselves, quote, actual, literal neo-Nazis. And I think she would have gotten elected had it not been for the efforts of a couple of local media outlets. And I'm not even talking about my own. So, yeah, I think we're seeing this breakdown at local, state, federal level And I'm not sure where it started. I do think you can't blame all this on Trump. There is an underlying, there are underlying societal, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. I wouldn't go so far as to call it an upheaval, but these sort of mumblings or rumblings that led to Trump. Like he didn't emerge out of a vacuum. And, but he has done incalculable damage to our country. And to see somebody like that succeed with sexual assault, valid sexual assault claims, indictments, but, you know, trying to overthrow an election. And he really hasn't been held accountable yet. Anybody else who had done even a portion of what he has done would already be in prison or jail. And he continues to, you know, violate gag orders. And it makes I think it makes people feel like, hey, if he can do it, He's rich, he's been the president, any of us can do it. And so we're starting to see these little breakdowns at all levels of political systems.
0: You, you, you mentioned um, the young men from Tennessee, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson represents the Tennessee le- legislature who were expelled by the Republican Party Republican majority. Uh, for those who may be unfamiliar, give us a quick recap of that story and and talk about what has been their fate since. Uh, we last had you on back in August, I believe.
1: Well, you know, expelling those two gentlemen was profoundly stupid. Um, it was a profoundly stupid move by the Republican Party and particularly by Tennessee House Speaker Cameron Sexton. Um, so what happened is they were expelled. The county commission or city council in both of their home counties reappointed them within a week. So within a week of them being expelled, they were reseated. Then the state had to pay for special elections for both of them since they'd been expelled. And they both like handily won um, as what we would call that in Tennessee. They won by an old school butt whipping. Um, and they've raised a ton of money. Money has poured into them Um you know, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson have both been to the White House. Justin Jones spoke at uh Berkeley, University of Cal, Berkeley's graduation. They have achieved national levels of prominence. They continue to raise money. And I think I, I can't guarantee what they're gonna do with their fundraising, with their proceeds, but Justin Pearson has already set up a pack in his hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, um, which is the, a predominantly black city. It is the only majority-minority congressional district in the state of Tennessee. And he spent $100,000 out of his pack to support a Memphis mayoral candidate. And I got to tell you, I think both of those young gentlemen could make a huge impact on Tennessee politics, not just with their own voices, but if they use their money and their power and their resources to back other candidates, that could be a sea change that Republicans did not count on.
0: Well, you know... I'm glad you raised that because kind of going back to my question to you earlier about us being a 50, 50 nation, when you look at the number of votes and I'll use, I'll use um, Wisconsin as an example, Wisconsin state legislature has a super Republican majority or close to it right now. Yet when you look at who actually votes and you you total the votes between Democrats and Republicans, it's very, very close and to your earlier point, I'm not suggesting that somehow Democrats were immune to gerrymandering, but the level of gerrymandering that we have right now really sort of is critical to damaging that finely tuned watch that I talked about earlier.
1: Yeah, that is a, that's an excellent point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Wisconsin's one example, you know, Alabama is another example where the U.S. Supreme Court even struck down their congressional maps and the legislature has been uh, not hesitant or not reluctant. They've refused to redraw their maps. And then clearly they know their maps are not accurate based on population, but they won't even comply in the face of a U.S. Supreme Court ruling. You know, in Tennessee, we've got a district that looks like a T-Rex running across the state. Um, the city of Nashville, the capital city, One of the biggest parts of the state, it used to have its own congressional district. Now it's split into three districts. Uh, None of the three congressmen representing Tennessee's 5th district reside in Nashville. So I think there are a fair number of people who don't feel like they've got representation. And I know Tennessee's got similar issues. I think about, gosh, I'm going to get in trouble here with numbers. But I would say like based on like we have 40-ish percent or more people who vote Democrat or identify as Democrats. And yet, when you look at the the way the districts are carved up for the State House and State Senate, like 75% of them favor Republicans. I mean, part of that, Byron, that's just, you know, the winner sets the rules, right? But at some point, Democrats are gonna have to, they're gonna have to start picking some seats off.
0: Um, We're we're coming up close. for all intents and purposes, uh, will be officially in the throes of a presidential sweepstakes. Mm. How concerned, in your view, should uh, President Biden be that polling consistently has him trailing former President Donald Trump in key battleground states, including uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania, with a year out? Should he be concerned, or, or should, or is this just the the trade winds blowing?
1: I think he should be concerned. You know, I'll say this for Joe Biden. And Joe Biden was not my first, second, or third choice in 2020. And I've never been a huge Joe Biden fan. Now, I have come a little bit more to that side since he's been in office because I do believe he's accomplished quite a bit of legislation to help the American people. But you should never count him out. Um, He has not remained in office for 40-plus years by being stupid or unelectable. Uh, And a lot can happen in a year. But having said that, I would be very surprised if his campaign was taking the, were taking these polls lightly, nor should he. Uh, I think it's really hard to trust polls these days because it used to be you called people on landlines and now you call them cell phones and who knows who's picking up. And even if you oversample to try to reach a certain population, I think we've seen over the last couple of federal election cycles that national polls are frequently wrong. But, I, you know, you got to consider that. Like, I think they've got to be looking. It's at least a bellwether of if Michigan's looking bad or if Pennsylvania is looking bad, they, you know, they're going to be swing states, right? So, you know, I would guess they're probably already putting resources into those states. I've not talked with anybody. I've got a couple of friends on the campaign, but I've not had any intense conversation about this. But yeah, I mean, he can't take anything for granted now.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, polling not being as accurate. So I, I wonder, could could a uh, a sub subtitle of the 2024 election also have polling on the ballot in that since 2016 polling has been not as reliable as in years past. So might our confidence and polling be also on the ballot in
1: 2024? Well um yeah I think that they're they've had their heads um I think they've had their heads in the stocks the last couple of election cycles, because, you know, in 2016, everybody thought that Hillary Clinton, not everybody, but many people thought Hillary Clinton was going to win in a walk away. And that didn't happen. Um, and, you know, and I think part of that, again, it speaks to the difficulty in trying to get accurate polling samples these days. I think polling is still effective at smaller levels in, say, state house races, uh, small local races, maybe even congressional. But these national polls, like people, there's no, you, you can't make people uh, speak honestly to you. Some people don't want to tell you what their opinion is. Some don't answer the phones. And even the best efforts of the best pollsters to, I mentioned the word oversample. That's, for instance, if you want to make sure that you get enough responses from, say, Hispanic men, if you might normally sample 200, you sample 400 because you want to make sure you really capture that. I don't think you can oversample enough to make sure that you are getting accurate results. And I don't even think that's the fault of the pollsters. I just think that's where we're at as a distrustful um, electorate these days. But but yeah, you've got a good point. Like another bad poll and people are going to completely lose trust. You know, I don't know if that matters in the end result. Does bad polling keep people home? Does it fire people up? Um those are questions I do not have all the answers to.
0: You know, Holly, it's really common. We hear it all the time. Every election, you know, this election, pick a year, will be is the most important in, in your lifetime. And it's a hackneyed phrase in my view. However, 2024 may be that election because it's less about the candidates and more so, you know, some of the things you've been talking about earlier, more so about our collective adherence to democratic rule. What do you think?
1: No, I think you're right. And I feel like I'm turning into my parents who used to say when I was in my teens and 20s, oh, I'm so glad I'm not young anymore. And but I do feel like this is the most important election of my lifetime. You know, Donald Trump deconstructed um, many pillars of democracy when he was in office the first time. And then we had the disgraceful January 6th, 2021 episode in which he tried to overthrow a free and fair election. And he's made no bones about what he will do if he gets elected again. He has said that he will come after members of the media, which I think could roll down to local members. He is talking about imprisoning political opponents. You know, he laughed with uh, Sean Hannity a couple of weeks ago saying, well, you know, Sean Hannity gave him every out. Well, you're not going to be a dictator. Well, only for day one. Look, he's telling us exactly what he's going to do. And we have seen in real life what he's going to do. He is angry. He feels like he's been treated unfairly. And I think we have every reason to be terrified about this. You know, again, Byron, you and I are students of history and I have long wondered um." What it would take for America to become like Germany was in the 1930s, and there are, and you've pointed out, there are some differences in our society, but there are some there are some similar factors. Sort of societal upheaval after World War One, uh, men returning to Germany found that they had been displaced in some ways. These were white men who found that their jobs had been taken by women. They were feeling this sort of unsettlement and displacement. And honestly, I think that in America for a long time. And I think it is, frankly, white men's anger who is fueling a lot of these political issues.
0: Do, to that last, to that very last point, do, do you um, uh, believe that perhaps that's why um, Donald Donald Trump has not faced the ire of his support, even with with allegations um from, you know, from sexual assault to violence against democratic rule to, you know, potential espionage. These are very, very serious charges, but he hasn't felt the ire because his anger is proxy for many of his supporters.
1: Look, I really could not put it a a better way. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think what we see with authoritarian rulers, and I think, you know, it's clear Donald Trump is an authoritarian governor, What you see with authoritarians is sort of this hyper virility and this hyper masculinity, um, which Trump, you know, I certainly think it's arguable that he's masculine. Um, Violence is a part of authoritarian. So when he speaks about, you know, imprisoning political opponents, I'm not sure that that strikes a negative chord with a lot of people because there are plenty of people in our electorate. They want a strong leader. They want a strong leader. It's not just America. We see that all over the world. And I think Trump's tactics, you know, I don't know if he's a student of authoritarian leaders, but when you look at this hyper masculinity and virility and the jokes he made during his first campaign, I think about, you know, the size of certain appendage, um, you know, we see that we see this sort of like strongman violence. I think he is playing into sort of a time honored tradition of authoritarian leaders
0: the the other piece i think that we have to address is uh president biden's age Yep he'll be he'll be 82 um if he were to be reelected. uh and i'm wondering does that place an unprecedented spotlight on vice president kamala harris so there may be some people voting based on how they feel about kamala harris even more so than the president
1: You know, I'm just not sure about that. I don't think it's pretty rare for voters to get excited one way or the other about the vice president. Now, there might be some chit chat about, oh, she's not what we thought she would be or she doesn't do much. But it's pretty rare, I think, for people to vote based on the vice president. Um, My gosh, like Franklin Roosevelt might not have won his last term. if People were voting on Harry Truman if that was a, you know, a, a referendum on Harry Truman um my gosh like think about george bush senior he had dan quayle so i don't know that that's actually going to be a factor the age thing to me is interesting you know donald trump is only a couple of years younger than joe biden but you never hear any talk about that and some of the things that trump's um his detractors criticize might actually benefit him like Trump is overweight and Joe Biden is actually out riding bicycles and seems pretty physically fit for a man his age. But I think just on the face of things, if you're looking for things to criticize, Biden looks frailer. Some people might call it good health and fitness. Some might people some might call it frailty. And I think Biden would be in a better spot with that. Like, I don't like to talk about age because, again, those two guys are essentially the same age. They're a couple of years apart. They're essentially the same age. I would prefer somebody younger. But I think there wouldn't be as much emphasis on his age if we had a younger Congress. But when you look at Diane Feinstein just died, and how old was she, 89 or something? Something yeah. like that. Yeah, Mitch McConnell is in his 80s and has clearly had some uh, neurological issues, and he shows no intention of stepping down. We have a very aged legislative body in D.C., and I think there's sort of a generalized discomfort with, These people of a certain age, of that age, they've had their time. It's time to let a new generation run things. And I think if there were a younger Congress, there might not be quite as much emphasis on Biden's age. But here's where we're at.
0: You you mentioned earlier uh, former President Trump facing 91 counts. Um, Do you see a part part of his motivation for president that this is actually a a legal strategy um to to i mean to avoid jeopardy uh running for president or is that just too cynical
1: i mean that's pretty cynical but i don't think it's too cynical but i think like this guy has got some i mean i don't know how a psychologist would or psychiatrist would diagnose him but i think he feels that he was cheated out of the last election. I think that probably he honestly feels that he is the right person to be president. There's a little bit of revenge. He wants his seat back. And I think it's just about him wanting to be in power. And I'll tell you, Byron, I, to be honest, like, I don't think he's ever going to be held accountable for all of the things that he's done. Like, I'll be shocked if he ever goes to prison or is convicted. I just don't believe it's going to happen. The guy's like Teflon. I don't understand it. Um, but yeah, I think he just wants to be in power. He wants to run the show. That's my simplistic view. Although I like your cynical one.
0: <laughs> well, stay, staying on that cynical, um, trend for just a little while longer. If, if former president Trump were to win and it, it is, it is likely he would do so, um, without receiving a majority of the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in fact, Republican Party, the presidential candidate in Republican, the Republican Party has only received the majority of vote once since 1988. So there's a real trend there that we can we can look to. Is it an oversimplification to say that going back to my watch analogy, that the Electoral College is part of destroying that finely tuned watch? And do we possess the maturity to even do away? But do we need to do away with the Electoral College?
1: Well, I think it's time for it to go. You know, the Electoral College was set up when people served as proxies. You know, when the country was young, people were spread out hundreds of miles apart. It was not feasible for every one of us Joe citizens to go to the church or the school down the street and vote. And so the Electoral College was set up as a proxy vote. But we don't really need that now. It doesn't serve any purpose at all. Uh, I, that I think. You've asked for my opinion. I don't think it serves any opinion. And now we've seen in this last election that some of the folks who are electoral college voters are, um, you know, they, they're easy to bribe. Like, so many of those folks were were fine with overturning a free and fair election. Like, let the voters speak. Let, let them speak.
0: Well, you know, you and I... Um... Grew up at a time where, even even if we weren't um, engrossed in civics, we 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 were given this sort of edict that of this American idea uh, that exists. And I'm sorry for staying on the cynical track, but I'm wondering, from your perspective, you know, especially with the work you do at, at the Tennessee Outlook. Is American democracy, in your view, something that we hold as long as it works for us? But if it doesn't work for us, we don't like it. where that one buy me again, Byron? Yeah, no, I'm just I'm wondering American democracy that we we give it lip service, how much we adhere to it, mm-hmm. that we that we like it, we love it, we but. If, but do are we do we love it when it doesn't work for us? So we had a free and fair election, and so now every court, regardless of who's been appointed, said it was a it was a free and fair election, but no one believes it. So it doesn't work for us. So American democracy is not working. Um, we can go on down that road if we we talk about securing the border, but if if we eliminated every um, how much we need illegal immigration as part of American economy. I mean, Mm -hmm. so, so the, the ugly side of American democracy, we only like it if it works for us, but we don't, when it doesn't work for us, we don't like it is what I'm saying. And so authoritarian rule becomes an option because we don't like what's happening um, as the country changes.
1: You know, I think you said that very well, and I'm not sure how much I can add to it, but yeah, I mean, I do think, back to sort of the authoritarian rule and the support for authoritarian leaders, you know, I think a lot of that stems from fear of change. And I don't say that I'm not patronizing anybody. I think change is hard, even as at a personal level. And then when we see our culture changing around us, you know, America has got more people of color, more You know, we've got a lot more immigrants, a lot more brown people than we've had before. You know, even in Tennessee, I'm watching the percent of Hispanic Tennesseans grow. Look, I think that's fine. We are a melting pot. But I think for many people, and even regardless of age, um, it's a mindset that when you start to see your country change so it doesn't look as much like you or it doesn't look as much like the country you have been brought up to believe it is, whether it's more brown people or you know, sexual and gender diversity. I think that is frightening. It's something I don't really understand. But I i mean, I do, but I don't, if that makes sense. Like, it is not me. But I do try to put myself into the heads of other people and think, why would they support somebody like Donald Trump? And I think it's because he gets out there and speaks to, hey, this is happening and we don't like this. And he says what they're thinking. And he's a very intuitive politician. But I do think that's... um yeah, when we see, you know, I'm going to add to that, too, that the, prolifer- the proliferation of like the QAnon type theories, it used to be that if we didn't like something that was happening, we might protest it. We might vote for somebody else. But now we've got so much of this like conspiracy theory. It's made it OK to believe things that are wildly untrue. So maybe your candidate didn't win instead of being disappointed or you vow a vote earlier the next time or to whip up votes the next time you just say it's a lie and it's untrue. And I think that has been the most dangerous thing in this country over the last seven or eight years.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me that we're moving away uh, from the democratic party and the Republican party. And we're sort of collectively becoming the Donner party in that Mm -hmm. cannibalization, for any American who doesn't see it the way I see it is an existential threat. And that's clearly a departure from our founding creed.
1: No, I well, I do think you're right about the Donner Party, because the cannibalization happens in both major parties, right? In the Democratic Party, you might not be left enough. In the Republican Party, you might not be right enough. But I, I'm not sure that this has been... Like every historical period of upheaval is a little bit different. But I think we've been in periods of enough political upheaval, like the late 1800s. um, After Reconstruction, we had a civil war, we had Reconstruction, we had labor unions growing. I think we went through a similar upheaval where there was the Bull Moose Party and the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and there was the Do Nothing Party. And I think we are in one of those eras of trying to find ourselves and redefine ourselves again. And, you know, again, like I'm sometimes comforted as a student of historian to be able to look back. And many of many of us don't know that we've been through times of upheaval. We think about the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. But those are not the only two periods of American history in which there's been massive sociological and economic upheaval. And I think we're in one of those other periods. I hope we come out okay on the other side i hope we do not become an authoritarian government country but byron you and i were talking earlier and you said you know america does not have that kind of background to continue to support an authoritarian ruler like some european countries have had and i'd sort of like you to expound on that
0: (laughs) well i i just i my my um my my thinking when we were talking off um offline my thinking was simply that ours um is 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 a history of pushing against author- uh, pushing against authoritarian rule and um, mm. when when you look at uh, let's just take germany Germ- germany's a, a is a, is a really easy example when when, when you look at germany um, after during world war 1 and after you know there was this authoritarian rule there was this kaiser and um, when you're used to that um, you embrace it. Even even if you look at, you know, the Bolshevik revolution, there was this czarist regime. So there's an authoritarian regime. Democracy is really hard, but it's but it's but it's in our DNA. So mm-hmm. at, at some point, it just seems to me that something so antithetical to our DNA will not be collectively embraced. know, I, I think you're right that fear plays such a major role role in what people do and sort of robs us at times of our critical thinking but i think at our core it's still this ethos of liberty and democracy that that sort of drives you know the american experiment so that that was that was my thinking
1: no i think that's good and i think some of that comes back to what i was saying about some of these republicans who've been lifelong republicans but just loathe the direction the party is going in with you know you've got trump you've got matt gates george santos Kevin McCarthy, who has sold out time and time again and gotten very little for it, you know, people who are placing their politics above the, the best interest of their constituents, their country. And I, I think we're going to have to we have to try to inspire those people who are Republicans looking for a home. They don't have to be Democrats, but somehow we have to make them feel that it's OK to not vote for a really terrible Republican like Donald Trump or George Santos or Matt Gates or Andy Ogles in Tennessee. And it's going to take a handful of Republic those lifelong Republicans to stand up and say, Hey, you don't have to do this. And, you know, we always hear talk about is there gonna be a third party? And maybe it's time for a third
0: party. Well, you, you know, you you mentioned um Nelson Rockefeller earlier. Who gave us the, the 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 famous term Rockefeller Republicans? But you mentioned Rockefeller. I mentioned um, Jacob Javits and, mm-hmm. and, and and Jack Kemp. While while these may be people I I don't collectively agree with politically, they were serious people. Yes, and I and I think that underlining this conversation we've been having is that it has become more and more of a deterrent the system has become more of a deterrent to really get serious people to stand up and and put their name on the line um to be voted to elective office it's just for a lot of serious people it just doesn't seem worth it so we 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 have the politics that we have your thoughts
1: no i think that's right um now i will say politics has always been ugly i did a little research lately because, you know, people, you always hear, oh, politics has never been this ugly. Well, it's actually been pretty bad. And Andrew Jackson, native Tennessean, you know, when he was running for office, his wife was called a bigamist. She was personally attacked. Um, you know, there was plenty to already attack Andrew Jackson on. But there are periods of political history that's always been ugly. But, yeah, I mean, we do need to. I don't know how to motivate people to stand up and run. If people come to me and ask me for my thoughts, my sales pitch is running for office is the highest form of civic participation. And it's not for everybody, but it is for a lot more people than than who actually do it. And it's worthwhile running. You should run to win, but there's no guarantee that you're going to win unless you run unopposed. But even if you run and lose... Um, you know, you can still do a lot of good. You can talk about things that matter to people that uh, the other candidate might not be talking about. You can make people feel heard. You can give them an option of somebody decent to vote for. But I think what's more what is causing more fear in people now is there are threats of political vio- of uh, physical violence and I think most of the time that doesn't happen. But if you if you just say you're raising a family with kids and you're thinking about running for office, do you want to risk having somebody shoot at your house, for instance? That's happened in Tennessee. Do you want to risk having somebody come to your house and say they're going to beat the you know what out of you? It's happened here. So eventually we need some people with cojones to stand up and be willing to run. But um, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like serious people. Serious, thoughtful, intellectual people are not being rewarded in politics these days, and it's a disincentive for those people to run.
0: No, I, I used to always, well, I still say it that the person that would always get my vote, regardless of party, would be the candidate who, during a press conference, when asked a tough question, said, "I don't know." Mm-hmm. Um, I would vote for that person, but but I but that person's probably going to lose by saying I don't know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think it's much better. If you don't know the answer, it's much better, much better to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. And these days, I will tell you, this is my old person talk. Social media has made it easier to continue to, you know, you can cut clips out of videos to make somebody look bad. You can show just a small bit of the clip. It gets elevated. Um, You know, it gets platformed. And so while it should be okay to say I don't know but I'll find out. Nowadays, politicians are expected to have the answers to everything. And you know, no matter what you say, somebody's going to have a problem with it. I mean, I believe you might as well be direct and honest and if you don't know the answer, you might as well say that because whatever answer you give, somebody's not going to like. Um, but I think I think there are, I'll tell you, I think there are still people who get into politics for and I think there are many people who still get the politics for the right reasons. They want to do something good and they feel called. But, you know, man, once you get in that system, whether it's at the state legislative level or Congress, you start cutting these deals to try to get anything done before you know it. Like it's all about the deal. And then you get into these insular little cliques and clubs and you kind of forget what's going on on the outside. And and that's just the nature of politics. And I used to say that I didn't believe in term limits. I used to say that elections should be the term limits, but that's not working. So I think it's about time for us to consider term limits.
0: <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back on for that one. Um, but 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 I would I would ask you though, since you since you mentioned, I was going to ask you this anyway. But since you mentioned term limits, it's a great segue with all the time we have left. Um, don't we have to do something? with the amount of money that is required to become an elected official at the state or federal level?
1: Yeah, we do, but I don't, you know, the Citizens United ruling that opened the door to what is colloquially called dark money and it's PACs that don't have to disclose their donors, unlimited amounts of money. Like you would, I think at this point you would have to undo that at the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court. And I don't think there's any willingness at the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court to revisit that. I mean, it is a problem. Um, you know, you have good and decent people out doing their working their hardest to raise money, raise a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a state house campaign in Tennessee, for instance. That should be enough. But then you got candidates who are taking almost unlimited amounts of money from or not taking it because there are limits, but PACs can spend this money on the outside, these independent expenditures, and they can just load up uh negative. Negative uh, materials against a candidate, support of a candidate. And I don't know how to address that unless we take it back up at the at the federal level. And there's no willingness to do that.
0: You know, I I raise that and I'm not I'm not picking on Republicans right now, but but they're just easy to use as example. Um, We are we don't have to be prognosticators to know that um, Joe Biden is going to carry California in twenty twenty four. So that that's, that's not um, rocket science. Right. So, but if I'm a, if I'm a Republican nominee, I can still go to California and raise money Mm -hmm. and I can raise that money um, from some donors who want a certain thing done. Then I then take that money and use it to run in a battleground state. Mm -hmm. So, so let's just say I win, I'm in the Republican Party and I win that battleground state. I'm sort of still, even though I won the state, I'm beholden to the thoughts of those donors in California. Again, that still seems to be antithetical to what Madison and John Jay and Alexander Hamilton drew up in the Federalist Papers.
1: Well, I mean, it does. It does. Um, but of course, there are a lot of people who don't care about that. All's fair in love and war. And, you know, there are people who call themselves strict constitutionalists. And I also am not sure how much I believe everything they say, because it really is impossible to get into the heads of the founders. You can read their writings, but they're, that's open to interpretation. But look, I'm telling you, a lot of these people, they don't care what the founders thought and they really don't care about how the country was set up. They want their power now. That's it. And, you know, I think you're right. It is antithetical to the way the country was set up. But, you know, we're two hundred and fifty something years in. And do you think Donald Trump thinks about what John Jay thought? Hell no.
0: This is why I love having you on because we're, we're going to get the straight no chaser. It's, it's always a joy, uh, my friend, Holly McCall. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Byron, for joining me on the ho- uh, on the public morality. I almost gave you the name of the show on the public morality. <laughs> it's it's always been a joy to have you, always a joy to have you on. It's a treat. Thanks, Byron. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron B Y. R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a app using your mobile device. Simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5 and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.